Maybe you heard the story about the, uh, about the pastor. Uh, years ago, he was getting exercise, and uh, he was riding his bicycle to go visit some of the members. He's riding down the street, and he comes to a spot where a little boy is beside the road. He's got a, an old lawnmower, and he's got a big for sale sign on it. And uh, the preacher stops and talks to the little boy, said, how much you want for your lawnmower? And he was thinking, I need one. I, maybe this one would work. And the little boy said, well, you know, all I want is enough to buy a bicycle. So they talked a little bit, and finally the pastor said, well, you know, would you trade even? I'll give you my bike for your lawnmower. And the little boy said, uh, he looked it over and rode it around a little bit and came back and said, you got a deal. So the preacher uh, got hold of the lawnmower and thought he would try it out, you know, like a lot of preachers didn't think about that before. So, you know, he started pulling on the, the rope to get the engine started, and he couldn't get it started little boy was down the street with a bike by then he hollered got him back said hey this thing won't start and the uh, preacher and the little boy said well hey you just have to keep uh, you have to keep pulling on the rope and oh and by the way you have to cuss a little bit the preacher said well I'm a preacher you know I can't cuss Uh, maybe I used to but I don't anymore and the little boy said you keep pulling on that rope long enough and it'll all come back to you (laughs) I can identify with that I'm ready to say with your pastor this morning that we who stand before you and share with you from God's Word, we're struggling the same stuff that you're struggling with. We're having to come to the end of ourselves over and over again, and we may know the words of Scripture. We may be able to to talk about them at length, maybe longer than you want, but we're still struggling in our heart and, and in our spirit and in our mind to be able to make those work in our lives, to be able to get get to the place where we can say with Paul, I'm weak, but you, God, you are strong, and you, through me, can do things that are beyond what I can ask or imagine. Now, let's do a little review on uh, 1 Thessalonians. You you introduced it last week. You know, and by the way, uh, if you don't have one of these, we got a whole bunch of these somewhere. Do you need one? Does anybody need one of these? These were handed out last week, and you don't have a new one, so if you got one last week and have it with you, that's great. How about it? Anybody? They're all been handed out. Great. Okay. I'm not going to follow this, but I trust that everybody in here can read. So I'm going to let you read that if you haven't already, and it will be a blessing to you, I promise. The only thing I want to have you note in just a moment is the outline of the book, which is generally given here in the major divisions. Acts 17, if you have your Bibles, Acts 17, the first few verses will give you the background for the writing of 1 Thessalonians. And by the way, for some of you, I know that it would be a worthy goal just to be able to say that, Thessalonians, that's a mouthful. (laughs) And, uh, uh, you know, it's still another goal to learn how to spell it. I would say that most people who haven't studied the Bible very much for very long, that just sounds like some gobbledygook that's way out there and, and you, you wonder if you even ought to say it. Well, yeah, you ought to say it because you need to know that the Thessalonian Christians are a magnificent example for us right here and right now. We're going to talk about why in a few moments. Paul visited their city, Thessalonica, Acts 17, the first few verses, um, on his second missionary journey. Uh, 
according to Luke's version and writing about it in Acts, he wasn't there very long. He only mentions three Sabbath days in the synagogue. And uh, on those three Sabbath days, Sabbath days in the synagogue, Paul is proclaiming that to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the anointed deliverer of the Jewish nation, and that they should put their faith in Him. Uh, not in Moses, not in the Old Testament, not in the sacrifices of the, of the old law, but that they should put their faith in this Christ, which, is, which word means the same thing in the Greek as the word Messiah means in Hebrew. Both words mean the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Christ. The phrase that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians over and over is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ruler. His name is Jesus. He is the anointed one to deliver us from sin and to salvation. Those three names Paul uses over and over. Our Lord Jesus Christ. That may sound like pastor's language. (laughs) That may sound like something you ought to hear in a pulpit, but not in regular conversation. I challenge you this week in a conversation with one of your fellow believers to say something about our Lord Jesus Christ. He rules my life, His name is Jesus, and He is my deliverer. That's what it means. Paul met a lot of opposition in Thessalonica. In fact, so bad that they ran him out of town. The Jews who were not converted, and there were a bunch of them who weren't, there is a core of Jews who were, maybe a few, and then there were some God-fearing Greeks, and that seems like a pretty good group, And then there were not a few, in other words, many prominent women, probably Greeks, Greek women, who were converted according to Acts 17. But when that success was being experienced by Paul in the synagogue, then the Jews got jealous, Scripture tells us. And so they began to figure out, okay, how can we get this guy out of town? They literally gathered up anybody they could find, including a bunch of Greeks who didn't care a flip, I'm sure, about Paul or his teachings. And they created a riot. They, they really messed up the town. Uh, some of the rulers called in Jason. Uh, Jason was one of the uh, converts, a new brother in Christ. And he was known to be sheltering Paul and Silas and Timothy. And uh, so they couldn't find those three guys, but they found Jason. They found some of the other new converts. They brought them in kind of before trial. They arrested them. They put them on the grill. And then finally, because they didn't find anything wrong with what they were doing, really, they let them, they they set a bond on them and they let them go. That's basically Luke's story about the beginning of the Thessalonian church. It's a church that begins with persecution against Paul and his co-workers. It's a church, notice, it's a church that continues to experience persecution from that point forward. And that's what the whole letter is about. I want you to get that in mind. When I taught for years, uh, college level at Texas Tech University, and that's where I met Mark first, I taught uh, several courses, one of them apocalyptic literature, one of them Pauline theology. But when I taught the overview of the New Testament, one of the things I tried to get across to the, new, uh, to the students who in some cases had never been exposed to Scripture, I helped them to see that so many of the 21 letters of the New Testament fall into two categories. I want you to get hold of this, okay? It'll help you as you try to figure out what's going on with the New Testament and the writing of these letters. 
Number one, there's a whole bunch of letters that are written to persecuted Christians. I say a whole bunch. There's several that are written to persecuted Christians in order to say, don't give up the faith. 1 Thessalonians is one of them. Even though you've got opposition, even though some of your fellow believers are being put to death for their faith, even though if you use the name Lord Jesus Christ or just Jesus, or if your faith is known to others, your business may be boycotted. You may be in trouble financially because of this. You may find all kinds of problems. You may even be put to death. Paul and others say, don't give up the faith. That's what Hebrews is all about. Uh, that's what, uh, here, First Thessalonians is all about. That's what Revelation is all about. Don't give up the faith even though you meet opposition. Now, the other and smaller category of the writings of the epistles, or epistles we call them in the New Testament, the purpose for their writing is simply to correct false teaching. Are you with me? Two groups. To encourage persecuted Christians, that's 1 Thessalonians, and to correct false teaching, that's 2 Thessalonians, I believe. Now, Paul may see it, I mean, Mark may see it a little bit differently next week, and that's fine, because you can read between the lines some other issues for sure. We'll certainly find some today. So are you with me? Everybody awake? I can't see you because the lights are so bright. <laughs> Can you trim those a little bit? Is there a way? I don't know. Okay. Thank you. Good deal. All right. I want you to look at the map with me. We got that up here? Let's go back to the map. Yeah, right there. There it is. Okay. Take a look at this with me. This is a great map. I want you to see how this whole thing is kind of laid out, okay? You see down over here where it says Israel, and down below that is going to be your, uh, your uh, Jerusalem area, Bethlehem, all of that. Yeah, over here. And uh, now the second missionary journey is numbered with, with one up here at Antioch. Let me use that thing. How do you do it? At the top. You hit it at the top. All right. There's number one. That's where we start this journey, Antioch. And we just go across to number two, uh, this uh, Galatian area, Lystria, Derby. We go all the way up to number three up here at Troas. And Paul receives the vision in Troas. This is, uh, this is when, right before he went to Philippi, uh, God, through His Spirit, kept telling Paul, no, you can't go over there and you can't go over there. Paul had ideas. He knew where he wanted to go. God said no because God knew what was better. And then going across the Aegean Sea, he went to Philippi. We've got that story in Acts chapter 16. Then he goes from Philippi after they ran him out of town. He was put in jail. There was an earthquake. There was a conversion of the Philippian jailer. You know that story. By the way, when you get to Philippians, I hope I get to teach. I love that letter. Okay, Thessalonica is right here, number five on the, the second missionary journey. From there, he goes to Berea. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. When they ran him out of town of Thessalonica, they took Paul, Silas, and Timothy over to Berea. They are given a high compliment in Berea. They're told, we're told that uh, they actually believed uh, the Scriptures. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? They actually studied the Scriptures. They actually checked out what the preacher said to see if it was true in the Scriptures. I want you to do that today. I would love for you this afternoon to miss part of a playoff game and to actually read 1 Thessalonians. 
See if that guy up there named Mickey knew what he was talking about. All right, from, from Berea, the two guys, Silas and Timothy, were left in Berea. The Thessalonians that were opposed to Paul up here found out Paul was preaching in Berea. And they said, hey, we don't like that. It's close enough. We'll go over there and tear things up. So they did. They created a riot over there, or at least trouble enough, that the brethren in Berea said, we got to get Paul out of here. So they actually took Paul from Berea. They left Silas and Timothy, but they took Paul down here to Athens. Later, Timothy comes from Berea to Athens and tells Paul a little bit about the Thessalonian church, the Berean church, what's been happening since Paul's been gone. And then Paul says, Timothy, I want to know more. So Paul sends Timothy from Athens back up to Thessalonica, and then Timothy comes back down to Athens and to Corinth, and we know they were together in Athens. Paul and Silas and Timothy were together in Athens at different times. They were also together in Corinth. Most scholars agree that it's from Corinth in the early 50s, maybe it was early as the year 50 itself, that Paul writes to the Thessalonians after he got the message. He writes to the Thessalonians. I lost the red light. Okay, well, anyway, you can see. uh, From Corinth in early 50, he writes after getting Timothy's report, he writes back up to the Thessalonians. That's the background. He's gotten some good news. Good news... Here you go. To say that the Thessalonians are doing well. And that's the, let's, let's take a look at Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. You got your New Testament with you? I was going to tell you about this. Kay and I, some of you know, are raising our little uh, granddaughter full time. We've had her for about five years. She's eight years old now. And she went into the worship assembly this morning and got one of these uh, uh, flyers for the sermon notes. And while we're, worshiping, while we're singing our song, she filled in every blank before the sermon. You'll like one of them on the back. It says, you must see the dynamic blank God has for us. She filled in, you must see the dynamic animals God has for us. <laughs> At the end of the singing, she said, you know, I've already got this taken care of. I don't need to hear the sermon. I'm going to the children's area. I was going to tell you, I love what kids say. You never know what they're going to say to you. I was going to tell you about the one I ran across the other day where the, the uh, little boy prayed to God, Dear God, is it really true that if, God, if, that if Daddy uses his golf words in the house that he won't go to heaven? Um, kind of like the preacher, you know, learning to cuss again on the, on the lawnmower. Paul is as human as you and I are. Paul is struggling with life. He knows that God wants to use him. He knows he's called to do ministry. But I want you to see in this letter that Paul is is wanting to defend himself. Paul is under accusation. There are people saying ugly things about Paul. And in chapters 2, especially, Paul is having to defend himself. He said, no, that's not who I am. I'm not greedy. I'm not trying to trick you. I don't come to you with a desire to just win your applause. I'm not trying to get your praise. My motivation is to please God. And, and Paul then unfolds that whole idea. Notice, let's look at the outline real quick, uh, Philip. The outline is at the top says divisions. Um, Mark has wisely in this outline divided the book into, the, there it is, the three sections. Let's go ahead and get them all up there. Uh, chapter 1 basically is the thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 
talk about Paul's interactions with the Thessalonians, and chapters 4 and 5 give the instructions for living. Now let me tell you how that's different from Paul's typical letter. Paul's typical letter has his signature at the top. I like that better than ours anyway, don't you? You always look at the bottom to see who wrote it, or you look at the letterhead anyway. And well, he signs it right at the top. And in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, it's three guys. It's not just Paul. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy who are, who are authoring this letter. That's why, at least some scholars suppose, that you have quite a bit of variation between the letters. Some say, well, now Paul couldn't have written 2 Thessalonians because it's so different. Yeah, he could have. Maybe Silas had to lead in some of what was written there and some of the phraseology. But there are some differences, stylistic differences, vocabulary differences, most importantly, emphasis differences on what needs to be taught and what they need to hear. And that's because the situation had changed, I'm convinced. I do believe Paul wrote them both. And by the way, I think, Paul, I think Mark leans toward a reversal of their order in terms of which was written first. You could have had 2 Thessalonians first, then 1 Thessalonians. I still go back to the old traditional view which says 1 Thessalonians was probably first not because it's called 1 Thessalonians, but because of the thinking of what may have transpired and what's going on behind the scenes. Then, when things change, 2 Thessalonians. But uh, notice that you have in this letter Thanksgiving, a large section of Thanksgiving that's interrupted by Paul's uh, various parentheses. And then you go straight into this reflection about what I did when I was there and what kind of relationship we had and what kind of work I did and what was my purpose, my motivation, all of that. And then finally, hey, I want to help you to figure out what to do from this point forward as you continue to grow and mature in your faith. Typically, Paul's letter can be divided after the Thanksgiving. Paul's letter can be divided into the doctrinal section and then the practical section. The practical section would be very... Very much like you have up here in chapters 4 and 5, number 3. That would be called practical. You've got everything in chapter 4 and 5 from instruction about sexual immorality. And um, uh, in chapter 5, you've just got a whole machine gun-like pow, 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 pow instruction about honoring your leaders, minding your own business, uh, being kind to everybody, being patient with everybody, Uh, praying always, being joyful in all circumstances, thankful in all circumstances, joyful always, and and just a variety, a whole plethora of instructions. That's the practical section. But what you don't have in Thessalonians is a clear, divided section that we might call doctrinal. So just note that. That's what's unique about 1 Thessalonians. You don't have a, a clearly divisible doctrinal section. That doesn't mean Paul doesn't have some powerful truths to teach here and to remind them of that he's already given them in previous times with them. It's amazing what he already taught them that was a background for what he's teaching and what he's reminding them of here. Let's look at some of the parts as you open your your text. Mark already talked about the first uh, three verses pretty much. And uh, going from there, I wanted you to just notice a few things. Look at verse 4. Brothers, loved by God, we know that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
Paul is already talking about his own suffering as he does several times in this letter and he's already implying that they need that pattern because they are dealing with suffering. Later on he mentions, I predicted that I was going to go through this suffering. It was destined for me and I was correct. And now you are going through the same kind of thing. What is it that gets us through those tough times? What is it that makes the truth that was sung to us this morning so powerfully that the Lord carries us. Were you touched by that song as I was? If you weren't, I'll tell you why. It's because you haven't needed to be carried. (laughs) If you have been there, if you knew that you needed to be carried and that you could not get from point A to point B on your own, then you know the beauty and the power of that truth. Paul knew it, let me tell you. His first missionary journey was dominated by rejection. He was stoned and left for dead outside of the city of Lystra. And everybody that stoned him was just glad he was left there. They were glad to get rid of him. They were glad he was dead. They didn't care about their own you know, guilt in the process. So many other times, Paul already in his life has met with rejection again and again. Do you know that feeling? Some of you know it. You know it so well, you'd like to forget it. I want to tell you, Paul's word to you is a good word. Paul's word to you is that I know where you've been and there's somebody who knows even more where you've been and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of who He is and because of what He accomplished, He will get you through. He will give you a purpose that is even able to get you through the threat of death and the experience of death itself if your persecution comes to that point. Notice that that they are imitating Paul. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, the emphasis is on imitating Paul in his spiritual faith, in his uh, maturity in the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians, you're going to have an emphasis on imitating Paul. Paul says, in effect, I want you to follow me and follow my example of working hard. See, one of the key problems in the Thessalonian Thessalonian church, one of the key problems is that some of the people had gotten mixed up on some teaching about the second coming of Jesus. It may be hard for you to believe. I'm kidding. There are a lot of people mixed up on on the second coming. (laughs) And I'm not here to go into all the details of the millennial discussion. Not at all. But I'm here to tell you, it hadn't happened yet. (laughs) You laugh. But some of the Thessalonians thought it had. That was their big issue in the Second Thessalonians. They thought they'd missed it. In the first letter, Paul says, Hey, let me just remind you some things I already told you, but you need to know about the second coming. One of the problems, uh, they thought it was going to happen in any moment. They felt it was so certain to happen in the next few weeks or months that a bunch of people had just quit their jobs. They just folded their tents. They just put their tools away. They just stopped providing for their families. They just sat on their rooftop with their sheets wrapped around them waiting for the Lord to come down. And they needed somebody to feed them, somebody who was still working. (laughs) One of Paul's themes in the two letters, both of them, it's strengthened in the second letter. One of the themes is get back to work. Now that's a hard message. If you're unemployed, (laughs) 
I don't know how you lost your job, but most of you have probably had the experience, or maybe you quit your job, uh, you've had the experience. Maybe you retired. Well, hey, Paul's message, even for retirees in this letter, is get busy. You don't have to go work at a job where you get paid by the hour or by the month or whatever, but get busy. Do something productive. Your worth, your value, your significance in your own heart and mind and to others is largely dependent on your using your life constructively. And don't wait for somebody else to feed you. That, don't be dependent on other people. You need to work with your own hands. And over and over in these two letters, Paul says, remember our example. We toiled day and night. We worked long hours so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. We paid our own way, so to speak. And elsewhere, Paul wrote to his uh, Corinthian brethren that important message. He said, I didn't want to be a burden to you. I didn't have to take your pay, so to speak. I didn't have to take your gifts. I provided for myself as an example. And uh, my authority as an apostle, for Paul at least, seemed to kind of hinge on that. Uh, Notice down here in, uh, I'm down in verse 9. He's already talked about how they have become a model to the churches that knew about their faith. And their, their faith is widely known. The report of their example is well known far and wide. And the people who are talking about them, verse 9, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Because of this and other passages of 1 Thessalonians, many scholars believe that 1 Thessalonians is written to a largely Greek church. In fact, some would say that in Thessalonica there were two churches. Uh, One was largely Jewish and one was mostly Greek. That is so opposite to everything Paul taught that I don't believe that. (laughs) Paul's message over and over and over is, come on you Jews and come on you Greeks, come together at the foot of the cross. And especially the Jews needed to hear that message because they thought they were too good for those Gentiles. They thought they were some kind of polished trophy on a shelf in comparison to those dirty, no good crummy gentiles who didn't even know anything about moses and the law well paul says look all of you are saved by the power of the sacrifice of the son of god there's not a one of you that has any basis for boasting including paul himself he said we're all dependent upon the lord jesus christ so come together in the same church but maybe it is true that first thessalonians is written more consciously to those greek members of the Thessalonian church, 2 Thessalonians seems to have a little bit more of a focus on the Jewish needs or the Jewish people. Another little note about the difference between the two letters. But these Greek now believers had turned from idols. Jews would not have been turning from idols. They would have been turning from saving themselves by the law. They would have been turning from what most of us need to turn from, and that is our own self-righteousness. Does that make any sense? I've known a lot of repeat, religious people over the years. And I see in them and in me the tendency at every turn, the devil loves it, to convince us that we can do it ourselves. Like our little girls when they were two years old. Do it myself. You ever heard that, mommies? <laughs> do it myself. And we say, to, we say to God over and over, I do it myself. You got a little law over here, I can do that. You got ten laws over here, I can do that. And when I get through, I'll just throw my chest out and I'll be so proud of me. And I'll tell you that you ought to be proud of me too, God. 
the tendency for every one of us to get righteous and then immediately become self-righteous is really, really strong. We are turning from idols. We are turning from whatever it is that keeps us from from worshiping God. Notice, these Greek believers are now serving the living and true God in contrast to the dead idols, in contrast to the unreal gods and goddesses of the Greek world, the Roman world. Paul says these guys are serving the true and and living God. And then notice verse 10. Not only did they turn to, to, to serve the living God, but they turned to wait for His Son. Verse 10. From heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, let me pause there. You wide awake? Most of us don't like to hear about wrath. We sure don't want to hear about the wrath of God. But you can't read 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians about, without having a, getting a pretty good dose of reading about the wrath of God. Most of us need to hear a little bit of that now and again. On the other hand, we also need a heavy dose of the love of God. Why do we need the balance? Hear me on this. I'm not uh, some travel agent for guilt trips today. I'm not trying to lay more guilt on you and more fear so that you shudder and tremble when you think about God But I want you to know that God is awesome. God is pure. The word that Paul uses over and over to the Thessalonians is God is holy. And He wants you to be holy. And when you are not holy, when you are impure, when you're motivated by your own selfishness and pride and desire for the the praise and the applause of people, then, then you are at risk. Because God is not pleased when you set yourselves on the throne. When you turn away from Him, when you worship the idols of materials world, of the material world, or when you worship your own self more often, the wrath of God will be pronounced. Paul makes it very clear in the first chapter to the, what we call Second Thessalonians, but he also emphasizes it here and again scattered through First Thessalonians. Now, how do you avoid the wrath? Or how do you balance the wrath? Hear me on this. <clears throat> I heard as a kid a lot about the wrath. I didn't hear enough about the love. I heard enough about the all-seeing eye. I didn't hear enough about the big warm hug. <laughs> some of you may have been there. But we also run the risk, some of us, of hearing so much about the love, we don't know about the wrath. We need a balance. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 11, Behold, behold the mercy on one hand and the severity on the other hand. God is perfectly balanced. God demands justice. Where there is sin, there will be consequences. But God, by His love, provides to us for our receiving, not by earning or deserving, but for our receiving by faith, He provides to us an escape from His wrath. And who is that? And what is that? Say His name. Our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't hear you. Say it. Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way that we get this understanding clearly and right between and, and, and in the balance of 
the mercy of God, that is the love of God, the compassion of God, the grace of God, all the good things that we want to focus on, and on the other end, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the hell that is reserved for Satan and his servants. We need to keep those two things in in check or in, in reality here in our own minds so that we can also truly appreciate what God has accomplished in Jesus and who He is. Now, so, so when Paul talks a lot about being holy here, and that'll, that'll come as we go along here, he's not telling you you're going to get there by yourself. Just like the pastor mentioned this morning, you're going to get there when you realize you can't get there by yourself. You're going to get there when you realize that you need God to help you get there, and only by the power of God and by the mercies of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the joy that is given us by the Holy Spirit, are you going to receive what you need to become holy? Look at chapter 2, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. He defends himself largely through the whole chapter. Paul is being accused of a variety of things. I mentioned some of them earlier. And he says, in effect, I am different. I'm not a charlatan. I'm not a wandering preacher. I'm not looking for a handout. I'm not just wanting to take your money. I came to you and I lived among you like a mother caring caring for her children. And later he says, like a father, encouraging and urging and, uh, what's the other word? Comforting, verse 12. I want you to note both of those phrases. This is a great description of Paul as a parent to his converts. The first is in verse 7. He says, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children, little children. And then in verse, uh, verse 11, he says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Philip and I were talking this week about uh, uh, trying to live lives worthy of God. Anybody else struggle with that? Come on now. We all struggle with that. We read a passage like this and they're all through Scripture and we think, man, I can't do that. I'll never be worthy. Amen. You'll never be worthy. What does Paul really mean here? What he means, I believe, is that we would be living a life to the best of our ability by the power of God within us to give God glory, to give Him honor. And when we fall and we do every day, when we fail and we do every day, when we mess up and we do every day, when we take a misstep, when we make a mistake, we fess up. We admit it. Sometimes we don't even know it. How many times I've been told, boy, you blew it over there, and I thought, oh, man, I thought I did pretty good. I was just trying to do this, that, or the other, you know. Had a good motivation, but didn't get there. Well, the life that is worthy of God is the life that knows how desperately you need God. The life that is worthy of God is the life not that's finished and polished and and perfect because you'll never get there. It's the life that admits how much you need what God fills in you. I'm going to take a moment here, and I'm probably running out of time. Oh, boy, am I ever really close. I want to call your attention to the prayers, just real quickly, that are in this letter. I, uh, I was struck by these as I went back through it uh, and, and carefully looked over it. Look in chapter 3, verse 11. 
Paul is notorious in his writings, and some people think, by the way, that this is his first letter. Uh, I agree with Paul that Galatians was probably his first letter, and that uh, 1 Thessalonians is perhaps his second letter, very early in his uh, ministry, in his travels. But in all of his letters, Paul's notorious for stopping abruptly as he mentions something that reminds him to stop and pray. Years ago, when I was preaching, uh, actually, here in North Houston, uh, I was outside the church building where I was a pastor, and uh, a friend of mine was with me, and we were talking about a, another person who was in desperate straits. He was just having a hard time, making some wrong decisions. And my friend who was with me, this is quite a few years ago, he just said, Charles, let's pray about that. And I thought, yeah, let's do. But what he meant was, let's do it right here, right now. And we did. And he led the most beautiful, powerful prayer. And I have tried to follow that example from that point. I don't care what we're talking about. I don't care where we are. I don't don't care who's listening. Let's just pray about it right here. Before you leave, before you get in that car, let's pray about it on the phone. You know, we're talking, we're concerned, we're anxious. Let's pray about it right here. I called home this last week uh, and uh, caught the situation at home just in time to pray with Kendall, our little granddaughter that's with us. And it was bedtime and I said, hey, can I have a bedtime prayer with you? And she said, yeah, uh, would you say it? And I said, no. I said, yeah, I said, yes, but you start it. And how blessed I was just to hear her pray what was the most beautiful prayer. God, help me focus. God, help me understand, she prayed. And if I were to tell you all that she needs to understand right now, she shouldn't have to understand, you would appreciate that prayer even more. You will be blessed by praying with other people. They will be blessed by praying with you. Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 11, just real quickly, he says, May our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. His first prayer was, I want to be there. I want to be with you. He loved these people. That's the thing that Paul does in letters better than anybody. Uniquely better than anything before him, his letters depict this warm, caring relationship in which he is urging his converts on to growth, just like a father, just like a mother. He's pushing them forward. He's urging them to try new things, to grow in their faith. He says, I want to be with you. I want to come there. Verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And then 13, he says, may he give you inner strength that you may be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. You never get very far in this letter away from the the idea of the second coming and the fact that Jesus is coming back and I want you to behave in a certain way because of that. I am very short of time, but i got to tell you, we need to pray more. We need to stop to pray. We need to learn how to pray in the spur of the moment. And I urge you, please, have a prayer on your lips at any time. In in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, down in the very wonderful series of quick demands, verse 16 and 17 and 18, Paul says, pray continually. Another translation says, pray without ceasing. Now, he doesn't mean that you should be talking talking constantly, always with words on your lips. You couldn't talk to anybody else. He does mean that in your heart is this sense that you're always connected to God. 
You're always, when you have that moment, you're always ready to thank Him for any good thing. You're ready to ask for His guidance. You're ready to ask for His help and strength and wisdom when you, read an, when you meet an obstacle of some kind. Chapter 4 then and chapter 5 talk about these instructions for Christian living and an effort to please God. Real quickly, let me tell you, or just ask you, what's your, what's your purpose for living? Even preachers sometimes live in order to be pleasing men, pleasing women. Paul says, that's not why I'm alive. He said, God didn't call you, Christians. God didn't call you to live a life that other people applaud. God didn't call you to just try to get the praise of other people. He called you to live a life that pleases God. And then he details that life. I challenge you to look at this list of of details, beginning in chapter 4 and going through 5. The details of life that please God. Now, notice, these are not what earned your salvation. Notice, these are not the basis for your forgiveness before God. These are the details of a life that please Him that give Him honor. And that bottom line, Paul says, is what our motivation ought to be. Amen? Please God. What pleases Him? First paragraph, I want you to stay away from anything that even hints of sexual immorality. Anything. Wow. That may have us not watching Desperate Housewives tonight. Because that whole show is just glorified sexual immorality. Pardon me, that's parentheses, okay? There may be a variety of other things that God wants us to call out, to filter out because we want a life that pleases Him. And then look, He goes into brotherly love, which He's already mentioned up here in this prayer. He says, look, you're doing this, I want you to do it more and more. He said the same thing about pleasing God instead of pleasing men. You're doing this, I want you to do it more and more. Paul is an apostle of tact, T-A-C-T. He knows diplomacy. He knows how to encourage the best in people by finding what's there that's good and building on it. Chapter 4, he finally gets to what you thought was the main topic of 1 Thessalonians. And what is it? The second coming. The Greek word is parousia. It means arrival. Jesus is coming back. But instead of being a threat to you and me and the original Thessalonian recipients of this letter... It is a message of comfort and encouragement. Paul says, I want you to comfort one another with these words. How could that be a comfort? That the Lord's going to come back with a great trumpet call and the voice of an archangel and uh, the dead are going to rise first and so forth. How's that a comfort? That sounds like a fearful thing to me. Notice the context. Christians are being persecuted. They're being put to death. Paul says, the Lord is coming back. He's going to get it all right. He's going to take care of the vengeance. You don't have to. He's going to deal with the people who are mistreating you and your friends and your family who are believers. So it's an encouragement that the Lord is about to come back. Some of them got the idea it was so imminent, like we said, they just stopped working. So now Paul, especially in 2 Thessalonians, has to say, get back to work. The second coming, verses 13 of chapter 4 through actually even into chapter 5, the emphasis Paul makes is, notice carefully, I want you to comfort one another. I want you to encourage one another with these words. And, by the way, stop worrying about when it's going to happen. Did you hear me? (laughs) Paul said, stop worrying about when it's going to happen. It could happen at any moment. So your commission is to stay ready. 
Stay alert, stay self-controlled. And Paul talks about alertness, self-control. That leads him right into these practical instructions with which he ends the letter. And, and I just can't emphasize enough how important it is for you to hold on to these, pour over them, read them over and over during the week when you're praying. And uh, then here's another prayer, chapter the end, chapter 5, verse 23. And I'm almost through. You've done so well listening. Paul says, May God Himself, this is my prayer for you, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Sanctify means make holy. All through this letter, if you read it carefully, Paul talks about being holy, being pure in your motivation, in who you are, in your devotion to God, in your, in your moral living. I want you to be pure. I want you to be holy. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It simply means that you are different. You're set apart. God is holier than we can imagine holy. He is so different. He is beyond our imagination. But He calls us to be set apart. That's all that the word holy means. Set apart for a special purpose. What's your purpose this week? Make money? What's your purpose this week? Get the kids to all their appointments on time? What's your purpose this week? Prepare food for the family? What's your purpose this week? Paul says, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. I love that. I sent that phrase to a friend just a few days ago who's going through some enormous struggles in his life, and I just reminded him, the one who calls you is faithful. He's not going to let you down. As the song said, He will carry you. I've been carried a bunch of times. And I'm going to need a bunch of more carryings. I love this class. I love the people in this class. I thank you for listening. I hope that First Thessalonians, as we've looked at it briefly, has blessed your heart and life and will keep you going. Let's pray and then we'll dismiss. God, we praise you. We adore you. We say thank you from our hearts for the message that has been preserved, these ancient words, as we sang, that fill our open hearts, that remind us to be patient, that remind us to be controlled, self-controlled, that remind us to be at peace, to be holy and set apart, that remind us to, to... Treat other people gently, like a mother nurturing a child, like a father urging and encouraging. God, we're convicted. We are every one of us convicted by these words that that call us to do what we want to do, but to do it better and to do it more. And we know, as, as we've already admitted and need to keep admitting, we know that we need you, we're desperate without you, We can't do it without you, Father. But with you, because of your faithfulness, because of your Son, because of your Spirit and the joy that you give us, because of the love and the the hope that is ours, because of the faith that we pray you will increase in us, we know that we can. We can. Because you can. And in the name of Jesus, we lift our prayer. Amen.